Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Just a few uh, details before we jump in. Um, I see there's some new people here tonight. Um, when the door is closed, please don't come in when we're sitting. Um, so uh, if the door is closed, just wait outside until you hear the bell ring, and then you can come in uh, for sitting. Um, and also, uh, when we sit, we're, we're only sitting on Tuesday nights before the Dharma talk for 30 minutes. Uh, so when we sit for a short period of time like that, please sit completely still. So the only thing that's moving is your breath and your fantasy life. Okay. Um, when you're really still, uh, you can see your mind much more clearly uh, than when you're shifting around. And also, when you sit, you're also practicing for the people around you. Uh, so the, the more that you sit still, uh, the more it benefits uh, sitting um, for the people around you. So the people who tend to kind of uh, fidget a little bit when they're sitting, next week you should all be sitting in the front row um, to benefit the people behind you. Um, so... The talk tonight is going to be on the topic of virya, uh, energy, and the relationship between uh, energy and relaxation. Um, and we're going to start in 1942 with uh, one of my favorite musicians, Lead Belly. He couldn't be here tonight, so Amy is here tonight. And this is going to be a little bit like camp except we don't have a, a fire. Uh, and Amy's going to uh, bring Lead Belly into the room. I'm sleeping for my leg to wake up. So your leg fall asleep? <laughs> oh. Do you want me to stall a little bit? Um. Oh. So uh, Lead Belly was an American musician. He died, I think, in 1950, maybe? I'm not sure. Uh, he spent, I think most of his adult life in prison. Um, every time he got out of prison, he assaulted someone or shot someone or stabbed somebody. Um, and when he was in prison, he was doing exactly the same thing. Um, and he befriended, I, I don't know the details that well, but he befriended a judge that uh, really liked him uh, and his music. 
and the judge kept letting him out. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he really had a rough life. And at the same time, uh, he wrote songs and he played songs that were so sensitive and psychological. And if you know early blues music, usually most blues songs are about uh, drinking and women. Um, but Leadbelly really wrote about moods and working with moods and really sophisticated uh, uh, songwriter. So because uh, he wrote a song called Relax Your Mind, uh, every time I was going through this chapter of Shantideva, I kept thinking of this Leadbelly song and Amy's not shy. <laughs>
feel like I don't really have to say anything. <laughs> Just be careful on those railway tracks. <laughs> Thank you for saying yes. Maybe be a regular fixture. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when you sit, there's a one-to-one relationship between um, tension and referring your experience back to yourself. You can see this when you sit. Uh, sometimes we talk about not being caught up in stories, not investing in uh, the future, not trying to revive the past. But actually, all those movements, forward and backwards, or whatever spatial or uh, temporal metaphor you use, are all about reinforcing our sense of self. And when that's happening in your sitting practice, a tension arises. You can feel it in your body right now, just sitting here. When you feel like a self, it creates tension. creates tension. Um, And it's also really important that you can feel how when this is absent, uh, you're at ease. And the Buddha called this dukkha, which unfortunately gets translated as suffering. But dukkha, which I think is untranslatable, also refers to stress and strain. The stress and strain that's at the center of your heart um, when uh, you can't get out of yourself, where you can't find contentment. There's a Christian theologian whose work I love named Don Cupid. Um, he's a he, he's a British the, uh, Christian theologian, um, and he's very inspired by the work of Stephen Batchelor, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I learned recently they're buddies, and um, Don Cupid translates the, the word dukkha as bitter, bitter sweet, <laughs> which I really like. Bitter, bitter sweet. Um, to me, this captures uh, strength. Um, to work with uh, stress that arises in practice it's really important as I was saying earlier to be very very still and when you're really really still what you tend to see in the stillness is agitation in a clearer way because when you're moving around a lot you can't always see the agitation that's why yogis have such a hard time sitting because they're sensation addicts. And you know, you, you're in a posture, you, you move with the breath, you breathe into sensation. Uh, but then when you sit, we're not doing anything with those sensations except watching what we do with them, what we add to them, what we inject into them. So, this, so, so the first foundation of your sitting practice is really uh, honesty. Uh, to honesty, to honestly and courageously acknowledge what's showing up in present experience. Lots of people taking notes suddenly. Um, 
And I think that in the first 10 or 15 minutes of your sitting practice, there should be a substantial amount of acknowledgement happening. Uh, Really acknowledging uh, the state of the body, acknowledging the momentum in your nervous system, acknowledging the, the vrittis or the fluctuations in your breathing. And it doesn't mean, acknowledge doesn't mean you have to fix it or make it different or change it, but just really to allow, allow yourself to see more clearly what, what's there. Um, not what you think is there. Just like we're trying to do in our relationships. Like that, that one time you saw someone in that special way. And then now you're always comparing them subconsciously to that special time. Or the person you hate. You know, They were so bad that one time. And then we keep comparing ourselves or them to that standard. Which causes stress. We have to relax our mind. Um... You can do this with your parents. This is a really good practice with your parents. But you should think about your mother or think about your father. And you should visualize your father before he was your father. And you should really uh, feel your way into the life of this man before he was your father. And then you should contemplate your father after you left the house. After you left the nest, or or were thrown out of the nest, or whatever your story is. Um, And so that you can have a broader uh, experience of this man. Not just those years where you were living with him, and you were in this relative conditioned relationship of father and daughter or son or whatever. Um, Acknowledgement. Honesty. The, the second thing you can do in your sitting practice that uh, is very helpful to work uh, when you can't relax your mind um, is what Shantideva said last week, which is patience, putting in the time. Putting in the time. And the third thing, which I think might be the most important but only works if the other two are present, is to soften. When things get harder, your breath should get softer. Even if you have to take swift action, your breath should get softer. And this is a really fascinating thing to watch when you're, when you're sitting, is how the breath really responds to the state of your mind. So your mind and your breath are like two fish swimming in tandem. When one moves, the other moves. And if you try to work with your mind to relax your mind, which is also called psychoanalysis, uh, it's very expensive. (laughs) Um, But if you try to uh, work with your mind to relax your mind, you tend to just create more mind loops. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, But if you go to the other end of the stick, which is your breathing and you really start to settle your breathing, your mind also will start to settle. It's so much easier just to be at war with yourself. So much easier 
just to, to run away or to fight. So, um, uh, also, I wanted to say something about concentration before we jump into the chapter. Um, because a few people this week were asking me about concentration practice um, and talking about their practice. I think sometimes when we hear the idea of settling in mindfulness and then starting to concentrate, there's this idea that concentrating is like this really intense, um, you know, uh, state that one is in. And I think part of the reason why a lot of people feel that is because uh, neuroscience is so in love with concentration right now. I actually think too much so. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that uh, to deepen your practice of concentration, you have to relax. It's like getting on a bicycle. You get on a bicycle, uh, you don't get on a bicycle and tighten up and hold yourself like this. If you do, you'll fall over. When you get on a bicycle, you have to have a kind of fluid movement. So one of the ways that mindfulness leads to concentration is not that you hold your mind on the breath, but it's more like your, your, your attention is gliding with the breathing. So you're softening your attention as it's merging with breathing until the breath and attention become one thing. It's just like going down a slide, right? So, you're, so, so the attention is going and sliding along with the breath. There's this great slide in Trinity Bellwoods Park that's a green tongue. Does anybody know this slide? They're trying to remove it because kids are falling off of the tongue. It's because they can't concentrate. Because they're eating too much ice cream across the street before they get on the slide. They're intoxicated. Um, but so it's like this. So when you go down a slide, it's like for a while, you're just one with the movement, and then it ends. And then you have to you know, go run around, go back up the ladder, and go down the slide again. And concentration is like this. It's not like a state you get into and nothing else comes in. But rather, as you're starting to get into it, it's just like you're sliding down the slide. You're staying with one breath, two breaths, three breaths, and you're just right in there in the groove. And then you come out of it. And then you climb up the ladder, open up your ears, set up the posture, and then you start again over and over again. Um, Relax your mind. So these are some some, uh, tips uh, that that I hope uh, will help you. Um, So, uh, there's a few people who uh, are new in the room. And also, the, the numbers are a little smaller the past couple weeks. And this always happens when the season changes. Um, because people's patterns change, their hormones change, their uh, adrenals change. Um, When the season changes, I encourage you to keep coming in the rhythm and keep practicing. I can't tell you how many people I've been talking to in the last few weeks who are saying, oh, I haven't been able to practice. This always happens when seasons change. And a lot of people say, it's early spring, everyone's getting sick. You know, and they're getting sick because they're going out in skirts too soon, you know, um, or they're not wearing their hats or their scarves. But I think one of the reasons why a lot of people get sick at this time of year is because they haven't been hibernating. 
they haven't allowed themselves to, to relax and to rest enough before this new spring energy comes. Um, so one of the ways that, uh, for me, is the best way to really relax deeply is to have a daily practice. So I encourage you not to put your practice in jeopardy when the seasons change, because so many things are changing. Okay? In other words, everybody should... I'm going to take attendance next week. (laughs) So, um, we're almost done. We're in Chapter 7 of the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, A Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life, uh, written by Shantideva. Um, uh, Shantideva's main theme in this text is cultivating what he calls bodhicitta, which is a passion to awaken and to live a life of clarity um, to benefit all sentient beings, including this one. Benefit all beings. And the first chapter was about how great bodhicitta is, how it's the, the centerpiece of your life. What a lucky life you can live if you put clarity at the center of it. Not just shopping. (laughs) Clarity at the center of your life. Um, And in the second uh, chapter, he talked about how to actually put clarity at the center of your life, you have to see where you've been unskillful and you have to atone. You have to become at one with your unskillfulness and you have to forgive yourself. Which was kind of a surprise chapter. You have forgiveness right there actually at the beginning of the path. As soon as you have this intention to do good, right away you see the shadow of where you've done wrong. The third chapter was about how once you have practiced forgiveness, then you can commit to a path of cultivating clarity. The fourth chapter was about uh, developing discriminating awareness to see what stops you from developing bodhicitta. The fifth chapter was conscientiousness, uh, which is how to have the, the attitude of going forward in your practice. And I think that's the chapter we spent on, what did we spend, four weeks trying to get through that chapter? Um, the sixth chapter, which was last week, is uh, was patience, which is about realizing how common it is to have frustration and setbacks uh, in your life and in your practice. And so today, the chapter we ever get to it, is uh, on virya, is the Sanskrit word, um, which means, uh, one translation I saw that I really liked was joyful effort. Um, So when you have energy, and it's modified in practice, it's called virya. And so I like to translate virya as enthusiasm. And I think that that's a good translation because it brings together this sense of energy and also the kind of joy of practicing in this way. 
And also, you know, enthusiasm is a much more interesting or helpful way of approaching practice than discipline. You know? I'm not so big on discipline, except when I teach in Eastern Europe. When I teach in Eastern Europe, I discipline, you have to be real, you have to train your brain, you know. But um, I think uh, to have a relaxed practice that's sharp, uh, it actually comes out of enthusiasm. And maybe enthusiasm for our practice is the most important thing. What's more important than having enthusiasm? And I say practice, but I don't mean practice. I mean enthusiasm for a life uh, lived with clarity. So, uh, that's the theme of this uh, chapter. And the commentators on this chapter say that there are three steps for developing enthusiasm. Um, I think you could even substitute the word enthusiasm for love. Three steps for really developing clarity and love in our lives, in our practice. The first is, when it's not there, you should set your life up in a way where it can arise in you. So when it's not there, so when enthusiasm's not there in your life, you should change the outer circumstances so that there is some space for enthusiasm to arise, which I think is really beautiful. This idea that it's just like a spring that's right there, but we're covering it over all all the time. Uh, Number two, and this is what some of the commentators say, uh, when it arises in you, it should not go away too fast. <laughs> Which I would translate as, when it arises, try and sustain it. Try and sustain it. And the third thing is, when it arises, um, and it can be sustained, then it strengthens. Then it strengthens. I really felt this last week. Uh, some of you know my, I have a sister who's a wonderful person and she's a chef and is brilliant. And so every once in a while we go out for dinner and she can drink. It's unbelievable how much she can drink. Um, so whenever I go for I make sure that for the next two days I have no other plans because I don't really drink alcohol. But whenever I go out with her, which is actually down to about once a year, <laughs> I try to, you know, keep up to her a little bit and drink alcohol. Um, So anyways, um, that's what I did last week. Uh, One night I went out with her for dinner, drank alcohol. And um, it's so much fun. (laughs) But then I remember why I don't drink alcohol. (laughs) Because, and it's so much like this when you start practicing. And it's not, and I'm not going to, you know, give a tirade against her for alcohol or whatever. Um, But... When you practice and you start to develop bodhicitta, when you start to make choices in your life that shut that down, you really feel it. You really feel it. And you feel it more and more and more. So this chapter is about uh, strengthening that. And uh, here's how um, Shantideva says it. Uh, Having patience... 
I should, so that was the last chapter. So ha- now that you have some more patience, <laughs> in one week, <laughs> I should develop enthusiasm. For awakening will dwell only in those who exert themselves. Just as there is no movement without wind, merit does not incur without enthusiasm. And wind here is not like the kind of winds that got me stuck in Chicago last night. Uh, winds are, it's just like a summer breeze. What is enthusiasm? It's my favorite definition. It's finding joy in what is wholesome. And as I think we talked about two weeks ago, not wholesome in the Victorian sense, but wholesome in finding joy in what gives energy to the whole. The whole sum. Its opposing factor is laziness and attraction to what is harmful. So the opposing factor to enthusiasm is both laziness and attraction to what shuts us down, which in early Buddhism was called Mara, the the energy that that closes down on things. And whenever there is opening, that energy of wanting to close down is always really, really close. It's, It's a kind of homeopathic relationship that you really have to discern. Because of attachment to the pleasurable taste of idleness, because of craving for sleep, and because of having no disillusion with the miseries of existence, laziness grows very strong. Is this anybody's experience? Without indulging in despondency, I should gather the support for enthusiasm and earnestly take control of myself. Then, by seeing the equality equality between myself and others, I can practice exchanging myself for others. There's a famous line in the text that he's going to come back to in the next chapter. This is his definition, actually, of meditation practice. Shantideva's definition of meditation is being able to exchange yourself with others, which I talked about last week, I think, a little bit. The mudroom. The mudroom. Yeah. Yeah, very good blog about that, by the way. I should never indulge in despondency by entertaining thoughts as, how shall I ever awaken? Nevertheless, It frightens me to think that I may have to give away my arms and legs without discriminating between what's heavy and what's light. I'm reduced to fear through confusion. So you have to understand the context here a little bit. So back in, you know, ninth century practice, there were monks literally who were, would say, and there's a famous Chinese story too about this, um, Actually, you know what? There's a more modern story. There's a story about a woman in Hawaii who was a student of Robert Aitken Roshi, and she really wanted to leave her family and become um, a practitioner full-time of the Dharma. And her family had a lot of pressure, uh, traditional Japanese family, 
um, had a lot of pressure, you should get married. And one day she came to meet Robert Aitken, and she had cut off her ring finger. And she had cut off her ring finger, and this was going to be her commitment to practicing the Dharma for the rest of her life. She was saying, this is the only thing I want to be married to, is the Dharma. Yeah. So, um, next week. <laughs> but, you know, in, in, in traditional, uh, especially, you know, in so many uh, tribal cultures out of which the Dharma comes, there were so many stories like this of people cutting off their arms and their legs, Bodhidharma ripping off. He, he was falling asleep during practice, so he ripped off his eye, eyelash, uh, um, eyelids so he wouldn't fall asleep. So he would stay awake like a fish. Um, so uh, what's really being said here is it frightens me to think about what I have to give up to practice. If I'm really going to live a life of clarity, a life of service, a life of joyful effort, it scares me to think about what I have to give up. I might have to give up the size of my house. If I'm going to practice and have a relaxed mind, I might have to give up having a big house or having the, the energy of trying to get that. Or maybe I have to give up so much attention to my retirement fund. Or maybe I have to give up um, uh, this job I have that's uh, causing pain for other people. Or I don't have any joy in it anymore. But I think we all face this. You know, uh, There's a, a story I told last year when we were studying Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind about a student who came to Suzuki Roshi and said to Suzuki Roshi, uh, if I go really deep in practice don't I have to give up the will to live? I think all of us, when you start going deep, this is a question, I think, that comes up. If I'm really going to... Don't I have to give up everything, even the will to live? And Suzuki Roshi said, yes. But without gaining the will to die. Without gaining... The opposite. So this is a really beautiful sentence here. And also I think it's especially poignant because most Buddhist literature, especially Mahayana literature, is never in the first person. And so here you have Shantideva writing the first person saying, but it's scary to think about what I would have to give up and it's interesting also that it's three-quarters of the way through the text where he finally is starting to see something about patience and enthusiasm. And he says, wow, if I'm going to really keep going in this, I really have to give up alcohol, <laughs> intoxicants. Uh, the problem with laziness is that when we're lazy, we don't think enough about the real nature of our lives. Then Shantideva says, 
The next thing that comes to block us from practice is not having a close relationship with death with a relaxed mind. And he compares it to living like a buffalo in a butcher's shop. That death is like ravaging humanity. It's out there all the time picking people off, one at a time. And for Shantideva is that alone should be enough motivation to have an enthusiasm for practice. Actually, I keep saying enthusiasm for practice. He doesn't say that. He's saying an enthusiasm for bodhicitta. Enthusiasm for a a life of uh, service to all beings. Um, So maybe this is something for you to think about. What what do you have to give up? Um, I think what he's also saying here is... What do you build your life on after you have your basic needs met? So most of us in this room have our basic needs met. Most of us. Pretty good, actually. And sometimes if you have an area of your life that's so wobbly that you can't practice, then all your effort should go into stabilizing that limb. So if you find that your financial life is such a mess that you can't practice, and I'm talking to all the yoga teachers in this room, um, that you can't practice, then you have to stabilize that limb. I keep telling people in yoga teacher trainings, don't make this your sole source of income. I'm trying to tell musicians this also. Um, so, so that you can really explore the, the creativity of what you love without the, the pressure of having uh, that be the, the way you make your living. You know? Just because something's your calling, it doesn't mean that has to be your profession. They don't have to be the same thing. Some people are lucky and it kind of worked. I feel lucky it kind of worked. But it's weird. It's strange, you know. Um, but uh, I really encourage everybody to make sure that their life is not too wobbly. But then, when you have your basic needs met, then what do you build your life on after that? Restaurants? Searching, you know, the next great meal? Travel? Or can we build our life on something deeper than that? Not at the expense of those other things. Restaurants are great, uh, especially with my sister. Uh, Travel is great. But we have to have something else in there that we're relying on. And I think there are are two things that Shantideva is saying about that. Number one, the two things that come next after you have a life where your basic needs are met. Number one, there's a lot of lists tonight. Uh, Number one is um, taking care of others. 
And number two is taking care of yourself. Really take care of yourself. You have a job. You've got your finances taken care of. Now, take care of other people. And take care of yourself. And um, you can care for yourself without money. And you can care for yourself without so much travel. And you can care for yourself without more restaurants. And also, I don't think that taking care of yourself and taking care of others are two separate tracks. It's the same track. Caring for your inner life and caring for others, they go uh, hand in hand. So, uh, last night at whatever time I was stuck in Chicago, um, I was trying to think about how um, to translate these teachings into practice. So, uh, I'm going to give you a, a couple practices that you can think about. Yeah, just think about them. <laughs> uh, uh, so, number one, I, you know, I don't make lists so much. I don't know what happened. I, I, I was just making so many lists last night. It was really, it was really funny. Uh, number one, prevent unhealthy states and abandon old roads. So, uh, prevent unhealthy states. Sometimes that should just be really literal. Like, don't go into this environment that enables you to do something that is unwholesome. And I used to hate the word unwholesome, and now I'm really loving this word, unwholesome, because I'm thinking about it in terms of the whole. So, first step, prevent unwholesome states and abandoned the old roads that lead to those states. Abandon them. Abandon them. Number two, uh, promote healthy states of mind and strengthen them. Okay? So it's like there's a matrix. Uh, prevent and abandon and promote and strengthen. So prevent and abandon go together. You prevent it from abandoning it. And then uh, promote it and strengthen what's wholesome, what's skillful, what brings you joy. What do you love? What do you find beautiful? And follow that. Not what other people find beautiful. What you find beautiful. And then you can relax your mind. And then you're fresh. Right here. Right here, fresh. With clarity. You can let the snow melt. One monk asked another monk, What is Buddha? And the monk said, Piling up snow in the meditation bowl. Can you picture this? So what's the mind of awakening? It's this pile of snow. And what happens to a pile of snow in the meditation bowl? It turns to water. becomes fluid again. It's a good immediate response. What's Buddha? 
what would you say? Oh, the Four Noble Truths. He was born in uh, 500 BC. He lived in... What's Buddha? What's awakening? Uh, piling snow in the meditation bowl. Another monk asked a monk, I have a little bit of jet lag. What is an awakened mind? And the monk said, you mean what is Buddha? He said, what is Buddha? And oh, the story is, there were two monks and they were in the kitchen in the monastery and one monk was actually working the scale, weighing the food um, for the, 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 the meal. And he was weighing flax on a scale. And then a monk came to him and said, what is awakening? What is Buddha? And he said, uh, three pounds of flax. <laughs> Can you picture the scene? Uh, the student comes, you know, he's really smart. And he's saying, what's Buddha? And he's right there with the scale, immediately in that moment. Three pounds of flax. Frustration, the, pain, the plane's not taking off. This was my night last night. It's frustration, the plane's not taking off. So, uh, relaxing the mind. How's our time? Um, I thought we could do a little partner exercise before the night ends. Is that reasonable? Oh, the enthusiasm <laughs> is tremendous. Um, it's unreasonable? Can we do it? Okay. Um, so here's how it works. I want you to uh, <clears throat> sit face-to-face with a partner, like Sarah and I will sit face-to-face together. We'll just imagine. And uh, it's going to be a repeating question. We've done this before. Um, and so I'm going to say to Sarah, um, how are you lazy? She's going to answer. Okay, and as soon, if they go, um, it's, it's not three pounds of flax. So you want them to answer right away. Yeah? So the person who's answering, just surprise yourself. So, so the first question is, how are you lazy? Then they're going to answer. You don't have, I'm putting on the spot. And then you can say, thank you. And then say, what do you really want? And then they'll answer, and you say, thank you. And then you'll say, how are you lazy? They'll answer, say thank you. What do you really want? When they answer, you say thank you. And we're going to repeat this for five minutes. <laughs> then I'm going to ring the bell and we'll switch. Okay? So there's no conversation. So when you answer the question, just it should be less than a sentence. So you don't kind of go off, oh, I really want world peace and I want to meet Aung San Suu Kyi and go out to a restaurant with her and your sister whatever so, so the first question how are you lazy the second question what do you really want are those two connected though so if you say you know, what do you, or how are you lazy you say television Yeah. what do you really want is that related to the television, or is it just something... Try to, something? try to let the answers just come. You don't try and connect them or anything. 
I want you to surprise yourself. If we had more time, we'd do this for an hour each, just so you really are not thinking about it. Um, but we only have five minutes each. Um, so find a partner, introduce yourself, and then we'll just sit quietly for a minute. I'll ring the bell, and then we'll start. And then when I ring the bell again, you'll, you'll switch who's asking the question. So the first question, how are you lazy? Thank you. Second question, um, uh, what, do you, what do you really want? So you keep repeating it to the person? Yeah. Yeah. And then you keep going over and over and over. Now, uh, if it turns out that there's one person who doesn't get a partner, you can just sit and watch the room. And you can play God. Um, and you can decide if you're a Jewish God or a Christian God or a Taoist God. You know. Okay? So, um, find a partner, introduce yourself, and make sure you're sitting face to face. I've got one, actually. Got 